You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Uh, before we get started, I have a quick but important and special announcement. Uh, this week is the week. My co-host Evan Ratliff's new book, The Mastermind, is out right now. The book is uh, so, so good. And also, Evan worked so, so hard on it. Like five years of this guy's life uh, when he was not doing the long-form podcast was spent writing this book. It's incredible. It's this true crime epic thing about a South African guy named Paul LaRue who basically created a crime syndicate on the internet. You will like uh, not believe the story is true, except you will because Evan is such a uh, thoughtful and incredible journalist. So here's the thing. You should, uh, you should buy the book. And particularly, you should buy the book if you have enjoyed Evan's interviews over the years, which I will just mention casually that you have uh, listened to for free. A thing you could do to say thank you would be to buy Evan's book. But uh, don't do it for me. Don't do it for us. Do it for yourself. The book is incredible. You can also come celebrate with us February 13th, we're going to do a live long-form podcast with Taffy Broadesser-Ackner at the Bell House in Brooklyn. The tickets are free. Suggested donation. Buy Evan's book. Come have a drink. Come celebrate. Congrats, Evan. Here's the show. Hello, and welcome to the Long-Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. I am here with Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hey. Hey, hey you guys. Hey. Uh... uh Oh, hey. hey. We, 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 we wow. mutually odd. Fan, fancy meeting you here. Uh, who's <laughs> on the show this week? Uh, this week I interviewed Tommy Tomlinson, who uh, he has a book out right now called The Elephant in the Room, uh, which people always say I read it in one sitting, but I, I literally sat down. My kids were taking a nap. I started reading it, and then I just shut out my whole family until I finished it, which was around dinner time. Um, it's a really great book. He used to be a columnist for the Charlotte Observer. He then left there. He's done a lot of sports writing for ESPN, the magazine. He's written some great features. He also has a podcast called Southbound. I really, really enjoyed talking to him. We're both from the South. We're both in Georgia. Uh, he wrote one of my favorite uh, sports stories ever about that quarterback for the Giants, Jared. What was his last name? Like I want to say Lorenzen. Lorenzen. I yeah. Think. yeah. Yeah. It's about, it's about being a big man and playing in the NFL. That, it features in the book, actually, in his book. The book is about being about big men, yes? Yes. 
It's a memoir, and it's combined with sort of like his effort to lose weight over the period of the year that he was writing the book. So it's his background plus uh, what's happening now. And uh, it's a very, very honest, very straightforward book and beautifully written. You should buy the book, but at the very least, there's also like an incredible excerpt in The Atlantic, too, which uh, people should go read. Brought to you by the good people at MailChimp. They make it easy to start an email newsletter. Hey, I got a, I got a newsletter tip out there for people. Oh, tip away. So if you're getting a lot of email new, emails in your uh, box, because I, I do, because I, I both promote them and consume them, I, uh, I get high on my own supply. <laughs> uh, you, you put in, let's say you have a Gmail email address, right? Yeah, all right. So I put in Aaron Lammer plus the plus sign newsletter. That still goes into my email box, but I got a filter, and so now I got a nice uh, box that's just full of uh, great newsletters, almost all of them from MailChimp. I genuinely think maybe an organizational tip from Aaron should become part of the intro every week. Yeah, Life hacking. Because I'm so organized. <laughs> yeah, due, due to your <laughs> perfect organization. Uh, here is uh, Evan with Tommy Tomlinson. Tommy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Evan. I really appreciate it, man. I am excited to talk about this book, um, in part because I feel like for a long-form podcast interview, your book provides sort of the perfect template to have an interview because it's memoir in some sense, so it covers your whole career, which is what I'd like to do. Right. And then it goes other places. So I wanted to kind of start in some sense where the book starts, but I feel like we should give people a little bit of background who might not know who you are and be familiar with your work first about your work. So, I mean, I know you as a long form writer, as writing for ESPN, the magazine and these incredible sports stories that you've been doing over the last few years. You also were a columnist for many years, which I want to talk about. And maybe we can talk a little bit about the genesis of the book and that can get us into it. So in the acknowledgements, you sort of mentioned connecting with an agent years and years ago, and then taking a long time to find this book and then taking an even longer time to gin up the courage to write this book. So I'm interested in both those questions. What drove you to have this be your book? And then what was the courage question you were trying to get over? My agent's a very patient man. Uh, Sloan Harris, I've worked with him since I think 2006. Mm. And I was introduced to him by Joe Posnanski, who I've been friends with forever and has written many great books. He's been a long form writer and he pops columnist. up in the, yeah, he in pops the book up several times. Yeah. And I started pitching book ideas to Sloan, the first dozen of which he just summarily rejected. <laughs> what which, kind of ideas are we talking? What kind uh, of you know, I had I had one idea about covering like the drag racing circuit for a year. So at one point I'd sort of gotten into drag racing and or thinking about the the characters in there is really cool and amazing and what they do is sort of death defying every time they get in the car and he said no to that and there were other like dumber ideas just a bunch of stuff for years and years and we finally got to the point um, after two or three years of this where I, I had several ideas that he thought were good enough to write proposals for and I think I wrote four or five proposals along the way the one that I think about the most was um, on the Alabama-Auburn football rivalry mm. so this was right after uh, for those of you who know the sports stuff, Harvey Updike poisoned the trees at Auburn, killed the iconic trees on the campus. And I thought it would be 
a good idea to just go to Alabama for a year and write about that rivalry kind of from the inside because it's the most hateful rivalry in sports. I mean, it's just brutal. And so um, that I wrote a proposal that Sloan really liked. We got to the very end. And I remember him emailing me or calling me one day and saying, you know what? I think this would be a really good book, but I don't think I can sell it. I don't think that the, as he likes to put it, the arugula eating editors in New York would buy a book about Southern football. And that's at some point, that's the people you have to to get past if you're going to publish commercially. right? Yeah. The people you have to convince first. The people you have to convince readers, first. Yeah. And so. I was obviously really disappointed. I thought I'd written a good proposal and got all the way there. So by this time, years and years had gone by. And I think it it was 2011 because I was in New York doing stories for my newspaper on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. So while I was here, I looked up Sloan and we went to have breakfast. And when he got to breakfast, he said, so what have you been thinking about lately? And I told him that what I'd been thinking about first that morning was, what this diner that we met at was going to be like and where I could sit, you know, because I'm a huge guy. I can't fit into most booths, a lot of bars. If they have like fixed bar stools, I can't sit there. So I'd spent time thinking about where I would be able to fit in at this place. And he listened to me talk about this for five or 10 minutes. And he said, well, that's your book. You should write that. And I've been thinking about that obviously for years and years or something that I needed to write about. It was the big story of my life. But hearing him say it sort of made me think about it and think uh, I should really do this. And then I proceeded to do nothing about it for three years because I was afraid. I was afraid to tell these secrets about myself. I was afraid to go as deep as I felt like I would need to go to do it properly. Did that stop you at the front end where you didn't even sit down to try to do it or did it stop you in the middle of doing it where you said this is just not it stopped it stopped me on the front end like I didn't even sit down to even write a proposal or anything Um, and I went on about my life doing other stuff um, but I didn't touch it for three years then in 2014 I did a story for ESPN the magazine on a guy named Jared Lorenzen yeah it's amazing Huge, he was called the hefty lefty when he played at Kentucky, played for the Giants for a while in the NFL. And um, when I found out about him, he was playing for like a minor league football team in Kentucky as basically a 400-pound quarterback. It's just this astonishing sort of ballet he was doing there, playing for 200 bucks a game, bigger than anybody else on the field. Still doing crazy things <clears throat> Still on the field. Still doing crazy things on the field. Clips would go viral. Yeah, exactly. And that's how I found out about it. He was on Sports Center one night. At the end of the show, there's often like humorous things in sports, right? And they were sort of making fun of him. But I immediately saw, here's a guy like me who struggled with his weight his whole life and a guy like me who's still trying to make something out of himself, you know, because of that. And so, long story short, I called him up and I did a story on him. Did you, uh, while we're on that, because I wanted to talk about that story, did you approach him with that notion Say, I did. Look, I'm not here to make fun of you. I know what you're going through. I did. When I contacted him, I said, look, um, I'm a fat guy, too. I'm probably bigger than you are, which I was. And I said, I think I can tell your story in a way that maybe nobody else can. And he agreed and was wide open. And, and that's how we, I mean, we sat there the first day and talked about, like, all the snack foods we love and all the, you know, the junk food that we've been sort of addicted to over the years. And that's how we sort of bonded. And so... um in the middle of that story, in fact, as we were in the editing of that story, it sort of 
flashed on me that now, by telling Jared's story, I could figure out how to write about my story. Because I asked him, you know, all the questions that I would have asked myself. And he answered them all. And I thought, I can get into this, and I think I can do it in a way that will be comfortable for me and revealing for the audience. And so in the middle of all that, um, I emailed Sloan and said, um, I, I'm ready to take a shot at this book idea. And so while I was finishing up the story on Jared, I wrote the book proposal pretty quickly and sent it to him and he sold it in two weeks. So what's so it like, hit? Once so you... like eight years of waiting <laughs> went into like this two week thing, you know, which happens often, I guess. Yeah, that was all processing that was built into being able to do it. Right. Yeah. So the book starts when you're a kid. So yeah. and you sort of trace both your history with food, around food, but also your professional history and how it's all sort of tied up together and then your personal history and your marriage. But let's talk a little bit about uh, where you grew up because you you grew up a little bit on St. Simon's Island, which I'm familiar with from, I grew up in Atlanta, so high school, uh, not even high school, I went on a, what was it, elementary school trip to yeah, we're, Jekyll Island. we're a pretty common field trip yeah. for, for uh, guys from Atlanta and, the, and their surroundings, yeah. Yeah, and then Brunswick, which is right- It's the inland town. Inland from yeah. there. So- Talk a little bit about what it was in your upbringing that sort of led you into writing. Sure. So I come from a really traditional kind of diehard Southern family. Um, My mom and dad grew up as sharecroppers. So they picked cotton on somebody else's land from the time they were old enough to walk, basically on separate farms down in South Georgia. And um, neither one of them was able to have much of an education. My dad quit school in the sixth grade. My mom quit school in the fourth grade because they both had to go work in the fields. But they were at school long enough that they learned to read and and read well. And they both were devoted and avid readers. My dad, uh, every night, switched between what I call his two sacred texts, which were the Bible and the Bass Pro Shops catalog. (laughs) And my mom, to her dying day, read romance novels by literally the box load. Like we would go to the used bookstore turn in the ones that she had read and fill a cardboard box with all the new ones she found. And then she'd go and read all those in like a month, you know? So they were both huge readers and believed in reading as a path to learning about the world. And so when I was growing up, a big moment in our day every day was when the newspaper came, the Brunswick News. Mm -hmm. It was an afternoon paper. It would land on our yard about 3.30 in the afternoon. I would go out and get it. I still remember that green rubber band that was around it every day. And I would unroll it, and we'd have this little ritual where my mom and dad and I would split up the sections, read them, and pass them around. And that was like everything stopped that day when the newspaper came. And so I feel like it's sort of inevitable in some ways that that's where I ended up, you know, after kind of wandering around for a while, was in the journalism field because it was the way that my mom and dad learned about the world. And the education that they got was not from school, it was from reading. And so for me to be able to provide that to other people in a way felt like a real calling mm-hmm. once it happened. It's amazing how many people come on the show of a certain generation who had that experience with their family reading the paper. I feel like someone needs to come up with a new one for the new generation where the family sits around and does something that will send people into journalism again. You all sit around for an hour with your phones and you split up the New York Times homepage or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. So you 
worked for the college newspaper a bit. Uh-huh. Um, did you initially land at the Observer, Charlotte Observer? No, I worked in, I worked at the paper in Augusta, Georgia for three years, uh. and then uh, got a job at the Charlotte Observer in one of the bureaus. And back then, most kind of big regional papers had pretty robust bureaus, and I worked in the bureau. Actually, I started out in a bureau of a bureau. It was a one-person office. I was like a subatomic particle, you know, of journalism. Worked there for a while, and then moved up to a, a bigger bureau that was like a 15 or 20-person office and worked there for a while and then actually quit the paper for a little bit because I thought I wasn't getting promoted as fast as I should. I, I mentioned in the book that uh, at the time I thought I was a real hot shot and other people were getting promoted in front of me. Well, two of the people who got promoted in front of me, one of them is Paige Williams, <laughs> yeah. who you've had on here, who obviously is now a New Yorker writer and incredible. Um, another one was Carol Lennig, who's won like three Pulitzers with Washington Post. So in hindsight, they probably made some pretty good calls there, right? But uh, at the time, I felt like I was uh, getting overlooked. And so I quit and sort of tried to be a freelancer as a young guy in Atlanta and just washed out. And they, with great grace, brought me back. And that's when sort of my career took off a little bit there. And so you did eventually get that promotion or you got moved into the the mothership in Charlotte? After four years. Yeah, so I came back. Uh, 1993, and then in 1997, um, I got chosen to be the local columnist. And that, to me, is a local columnist always fascinated me. Even from when I was a kid. I mean, in Atlanta, we had like Louis Grizzard, who wrote all these books. And so I, I, I went back and read a bunch of your. I mean, not that many because there's a thousand columns oh, God, or something. Yeah. 500 word columns, just knocked out right. week after week. And I just, I love that. But I'm interested in your, what was your approach to it? Because there's an element of sort of being the kind of like conscience of the community. Sure. Uh, and did that come naturally to you, sort of opining on what was going on in the community around you? Well, I thought about how I would, you know, I'd had a lot of time to think about how I would do it if I wanted to do it. Because I, I, it's a job I'd wanted for a long time. I, it's one of those things that when I started out in newspapers, even as far back as when I was in college, I thought that would be a great job. And I thought if I was going to do it, I would try to do it as a reporter, mostly, mm-hmm. you know, to kind of be in the middle of things. Because a lot of columnists were sort of essayists, basically. And I thought it would be better to be sort of in the Mike Royko tradition, Jimmy Breslin, people who were on the streets figuring stuff out. And so that's what I set out to do at The Observer. And yeah, I think for so long at newspapers, that columnist spot was sort of the anchor. It was often the first thing people read in the morning. Mm -hmm. Um, It was often the thing that people reacted to the most. And I thought there was a responsibility there to sort of try to be the conscience of the community or at least the the person trying to coalesce what, to make sense of things. You know, that's what I felt I think the most uh, responsibility for as I was a columnist was to go into a situation that's complicated and You know, there are lots of different points of view and to try to make sense of it, to come out of it with an opinion. Here's what I feel about it, but also to feel like everybody has a better sense now of what this means and what it's all about. Mm -hmm. And so that was what I was going into it, trying to do. I uh, when I was sort of poking around, there was I mean, you were filing for a Pulitzer Uh um, and then also the local alt weekly at one point. I had saw that they said, you know, our favorite local columnist, Tommy Thompson, two years in a row or two years out of four or something like that. And I thought, wow, the local all Wheatley doesn't usually uh, 
shower that kind of praise on the and then another year you were like the columnists were most sick of yeah exactly <laughs> if, you stick, greater, if you stick around long enough you eventually <laughs> become the, the second thing yeah i feel like it went the other way though but when you left they wrote a very nice thing i saw that yeah, they were yeah, like, yeah. we'll we'll be sad when he, that he's not doing columns anymore but were there are there pieces that you look back now that stick in your memory that you feel like you did capture that conscience element that reported conscience i feel like there were some yeah i one that jumps to mind right away is there was a a moment when down in charleston they had found this old confederate submarine called the hunley and so there were the remains of i think seven or eight confederate soldiers were inside and this became a real a moment of celebration in sort of the confederate american community they honored these guys um there was a big march in charleston where a lot of the confederate you know supporters kind of came out to um talk about this and so i went to charleston that day to cover this and to try to make sense of why that means so much to them and what i think the real meaning of it was which is sort of what i called the polite confederacy which is these people who think it's all about honoring the dead and it's all about heritage and they kind of tend to obscure the real reasons the confederacy existed in the first place and the real reason the civil war was fought which was owning other people right and so while i was there i i'd done some prep work and i had found this guy who does like black history tours in charleston and I went to see him that day, that same day, and he was telling me about this group, I, I, I think it was called just the Charleston Nine, and it was like the last nine people to be sold into slavery on the trading block in Charleston. And I believe there were seven Hunley soldiers or whatever, and I wrote a column basically saying you can't deal with the Hunley Seven until you deal with the Charleston Nine, basically, and trying to square that. And so I wrote a that was like a daily piece, you know, that I had to do the whole thing in six hours or whatever. And that really hit with an impact, I felt. You know, obviously I heard huge blowback from all the sort of Confederate support groups and they were putting me on their mailing list. And I was, I was getting like what the early version of bots were, where right. I get like a thousand emails from, from all these people, you know. But, but I felt like as a Southerner, especially somebody who lived in the South basically my whole life, you know, that whole notion of respect for this cause that was not respectable is something that I felt like as a especially as a white southerner it was important for me to try to talk about and so that's one in particular that I felt like kind of hit the mark I was aiming for and that is at that time in particular I mean that's a very successful spot to be in in a newspaper oh, like sure. that local column is like Biggest paper in North Carolina, right? Yeah, and they were really good. So, like if it was off a big news story or something they thought was really good, they would put it on the front page. I mean, they were, I got to write kind of longer pieces that were still columns, <clears throat> but not in that rail spot. Like that Charleston piece was one of them. So they were really good to me and giving me, you know, sort of room to, to play with the column idea a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that intrigued me about reading your story here was that you know, if you look at your parents were sharecroppers, your mom worked in a seafood packing plant and didn't graduate from school. And then you go to college. You're the columnist for the Charlotte Observer. Yeah. Like it's like the American success story. But then you not quite give it all up, but like you make a pivot in your life looking for something 
more. Like, I feel like you could have settled in and you could still be the, co- I don't know what the deal is with the Charlotte Observer right now, but. <laughs> they're, well, they're, right now there currently really isn't a columnist there, but, but yeah, that could have been a life that I could have done for longer. I mean, certainly they didn't want me to leave, uh, I think. And so, but in, as you say, in 2012, my friend Joe, who, who comes up again and again in this book, had gotten a job. Uh, he was the first employee hired by a startup called Sports on Earth. And I, by that time, I had done a couple of magazine pieces. I did one for Sports Illustrated on the whole Harvey Updike, Alabama, Auburn thing. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I could stretch in those pieces in a way that was increasingly difficult as a columnist. And the other thing about being a columnist is, and as much as I loved it, it is very much like being in a really successful band in the sense that most of your fans want you to keep doing what you've been doing. Mm-hmm. And so if you do something different, they're like, well, I liked you better when you were doing this other thing. <laughs> and that's totally understandable. I'm I'm that way as a fan too. But I felt like for me to grow as a journalist, I needed to try to do some other things. And so this Sports on Earth job opened up and they, they offered me a job to write about college football, which is the sport I love the most. And I took it. And Sports on Earth sort of flamed out fairly quickly. It, it lingered for several years after they got rid of me. And they got rid of me after about a year. But it was never what all of us hoped it would be at the start. They had some really bad business problems that they just were never able to solve. So that sounds like every sounds internet like media many, many, Right. And I knew going in, most startups fail, right? Yeah. But, and I, but I thought like it was a chance worth taking. And I would get to write some stories and be in some places that I hadn't been before, try some new things. And I felt like, worst comes to worst, I'll probably land on my feet somewhere. And so that's basically what happened. So all this time, I mean, one of the passages in the book that most stuck with me, because I think everyone maybe has some version of it, I would think everyone has some version of it, is you sort of describe being a kid and getting made fun of related to your weight and then being older and that something can happen in a moment and it just turns you into that kid again. It just makes you feel exactly back in that moment. And so this whole time, were you experiencing that as you kind of, was it cutting against the success that you were having journalistically, this idea that like you were struggling in this other part of your life or were you not even thinking about it at that point? I was thinking about it because I would have a fairly regular crew of readers who would remind me about it. Oh. Uh, from down, I mean, that's part of the gig when you're a columnist, especially, mm-hmm. is that you're going to get feedback on anything. Anything you write that's good enough to be loved is also going to be hated. And the way some people express that to me is by saying the most common thing I would hear is, well, who are you to judge anyone? You can't even control your own weight. So, like, you can't control your own life. Why are you talking about somebody else's? And so that I got that, you know, quite a bit over the years. The The positive feedback I got was much bigger than negative feedback. But, of course, the negative feedback is what sticks in your mind the most. Mm-hmm. And most of that, even, I was able to sort of brush off or compartmentalize or whatever. Yet it's weird to be, I think, anybody creative, you have to have, at the same time, it's really thick skin to defend against all that stuff. But you also have to be porous and sensitive and to be able to do the kind of stuff you want to do. So you have to have kind of these two skins. And sometimes if somebody was really skilled at their criticism, it got all the way in and penetrated and really took me back to those days when I was a little kid getting laughed at. And those were the days that 
I thought, you know, part of me thought, well, who am I to judge somebody else? You know, who am I to be this in this role to sort of pass judgment on somebody else's failings when the one big problem I've had my whole life, I've never been able to get over. Mm-hmm. And so those are days when I, you know, thought the critics sort of had a point, basically. I mean, that's one of the things you describe very eloquently is like everyone has something about themselves that they can't quite deal with or that they're not happy with and yours happened to be one that everyone could see. Yeah, you can't hide being 460 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. And I would think it would get more difficult when you became a freelancer just because, as you also describe in the book, the process of being a freelancer is just, it just accentuates, at least for me, this idea of like, this is my last piece if I fuck it up. Like, you sit down and you're just like, oh, why is anyone even paying me to do this? It's like you go through the same thing every time because you have no institutional support to kind of give you a little ballast against that feeling. Right. Freelance is so much cold calling people and so much working with people that you never even meet. You know, like 90% of the editors I've worked with on freelancers, I, if I ran into them on the street, I wouldn't know them. You know, so it's just this weird anonymous life. And you're often either on the road, which is not good for most people's health, you know, because you're having to eat out, or you're at home like four steps from your refrigerator. Yeah. You know, and so there's no good place to be to sort of live a healthy lifestyle or put it another way it's a lot easier to live a bad lifestyle I guess so yeah I think in some ways that accentuated that and also what you said about sort of that daily stress of like am I going to be able to find work am I going to be able to pay the rent this month when's that check coming in that they promised me all the stuff that freelancers deal with all the time that's not conducive to like a stable healthy lifestyle and so that, you know, I brought that on myself, but it's something that I noticed certainly was making it easier for me. The other, and the other thing about it is I could have free time whenever I felt like it in a yeah. sense. So if I wanted to drive down and get a burger, you know, nobody was stopping me. I wasn't on anybody's clock. And so I could just do that and sort of in the short term, justify it to myself, even though it was really unjustifiable. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, you describe it. When you do something well, you're like, I'm going to go celebrate that. Right. And when you're down, you're like, this is not a time for me to eat healthy. I mean, I've, that's how I behave. You know, I feel like, okay, well, now I got to treat myself because I feel terrible right now. Yeah. And you just be trapped in this cycle where nothing, there's no state of emotional, I guess, balance where you don't feel like pursuing that. Yeah. Freelancing especially is such a roller coaster. And so just to feel like you survived it at the end of the day. You feel like I need the reward. Yeah. And, that, and for me, that's always been the reward. And you had, you've had two big health scares in your life. Mm-hmm. And how did those sort of factor into your thinking and, and what went into writing this book this way? So the two big health scares I had, uh, the reason I have this voice is that when I was 29, I was diagnosed with throat cancer and had to have surgery that took out most of my voice box. And um, I was really worried at the time that I wasn't going to be able to be a reporter anymore because they couldn't guarantee when I went in that they would be able to preserve my voice. And then later on, 15 years later, I had a, a, it sounds way worse than it is, I had a tumor inside my heart. It was a benign tumor called an atrial myxoma. And uh, I had to have uh, open heart surgery to remove that. And I'd like to say that those two things sort of like changed my life and got me onto a better lifestyle and sort of brought me up short. But the truth is, 
I sort of learned to deal with both of them and I just kind of kept doing what I was doing. And that's looking back, that's like, I feel so stupid for not letting that be a moment, like an inflection point in my life, both of them. The one thing I, I will say that it changed was the throat surgery actually, looking back, I think made me a better reporter because I could no longer stand in a locker room and like holler out questions or at a press conference. You know, my voice just wouldn't allow it. And so to get people to talk to me, I had to pull them to the side or I had to meet them somewhere kind of one-on-one. And those conversations I quickly found out were always better than the ones in the press conference or the locker room. And so, and that that's the kind of conversations that I wanted to have and ended up being able to have. And I had a built-in excuse for having to do them. It's like, dude, I can't talk to you here. Can we just come over here? And so that, it turned out in some bizarre way to be a real gift to my career. Well, also your voice is very distinctive. I've listened to your podcast and it's very, you can really settle into it. And really, I hope so. Oh, I think I think it, I think some people it's really hard to listen to, huh. especially for long. Like I've I did the audio book for my book, and it's I don't, I don't know what's going to be, ten or eleven hours. I can't imagine somebody <laughs> listening to me for ten or eleven hours. If they can, God bless them. You know. Well, that but, uh, that may be true. Uh, I feel that way, no matter voice quality or not. It's yeah. hard to imagine someone listening to me for ten or eleven hours. Yeah, but, but some people like it. And some people don't. It's an acquired taste. <laughs> so when you talked about sort of coming back from your heart surgery and then saying, well, it didn't change my behavior. It made me think about, there's a passage in here where you you talk a little bit about sort of other approaches to how people view being fat. And you mentioned Lindy West's book. And I feel yeah, like- which I loved, yeah. Yeah, one question I had was, did you feel in this book, like you're in conversation with other books on this topic? A little bit, I guess, although I'm not sure they would agree with that. But I, I certainly read all those books. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the two that hit me the hardest were Lindy's book and Roxane Gay's book, right. Hunger. It, somebody asked me something really interesting the other day that I had not thought about much before this, which was why are most of these books written by women? Because there are very few books of, on this perspective written by guys. And I think it's because women have been penalized for their weight much more than men have over the years, not just in the workplace and the dating life, just day to day, walking around in the world. Women pay a price for being overweight in a way that men don't. I mean, to my knowledge, I've never been denied a job or overlooked for something because of my weight, you know, and, and I'm, I'm overweight enough where it's no longer charming, but there is certainly, you know, guys have dad bods or whatever, mm. and people sort of think, ah, oh, it's okay for a guy to carry a few extra pounds. Women don't have that luxury. And so I've thought a lot about, you know, the kind of body positivity movements that are out there. And I believe in all of them. I believe if you're the size and shape you want to be and you feel healthy and happy in your body, then screw everybody else. You know, that's where you want to be. I worry slightly, one small part of that I worry about is that some people who are overweight like me will see that as a free pass to not be healthy and happy, but to pretend they are because everybody's telling them it's okay. I don't know what percentage of people who are dealing with all this will would go into that category, probably a small minority. I think overall the body positivity movement, the things that Lindy and Roxanne and people like that talk about are a huge benefit because before that, 
everybody dumped on fat people. You know, it's just like we were like the last category of people that it was okay for everybody to joke about. Mm-hmm. And I think that pushback is welcome. But I do have some concerns about it, too. And I sort of talked about both those things in the book. And the book also, I mean, we haven't talked about, there's another another narrative in the book that's woven together, which is you trying to, in a very healthy and reasonable way, lose weight. Yeah. And, I mean, there's a million ways to write a book, but there's a way to write this book that didn't have that element in it at all. Right. And I'm wondering, did the book drive you to do that? Or did doing that more drive you to write write the book? Well, we talked about this a lot before I started writing because I had never successfully lost weight before. And so I talked to Sloan. I talked to my editor, Simon Schuster, uh, Jofi Ferrari Adler, who's great. And we talked about this before we got started, basically. And I said, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to lose weight successfully in this book. I don't think it's necessary for the book to succeed. I want to write about the struggle, but I also want to kind of walk people through what it's like for me day to day as I do this and just see what happens. And they both agree that that's the way we should do it. And so, yeah, I, with each chapter, each chapter in the book is sort of a bigger kind of narrative of my life story. And then there's a little sub chapter that basically say, here are the things I dealt with that month that I'm talking about in the book. And here's the numbers that I, I reached at the end of the month. And so, um, to get to your question, I think it did probably motivate me a little bit because I didn't want to look like an utter failure at the end, even though Sloan and Jofi had said, we're going to do this either way. Mm. But I, I will tell you the thing that sort of galvanized me even more than that was the death of my sister. Mm-hmm. So she died. I signed the contract in like November of 2014. She died Christmas Eve that year. And she had been overweight her whole life, just like me. She was older than me. And died from complications, an infection that was sort of directly straight line connected to her weight. And that, more than anything, made me think, you know, if I don't deal with this now, I'm not going to be around to write this book in 10 years, you know. And so the book helped, certainly. The idea that I was going to put this stuff on paper and expose myself in this way to the world. And I didn't want to be a failure at the end of it. But more than that, I didn't want to be a failure because I didn't want to be a failure. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to, I don't want to die. You know, I I think of that um, ending to Olive Kittredge, which was a great book I read over the holidays, actually. At the end, she's like, this world is baffling to me. I don't want to leave it. You know, and that's kind of how I feel. Like all the struggle that I've had and all the weirdness that I've gone through and all the the self-inflicted things that I've done, I don't want to leave this world. And so that motivated me big time. Well, it takes me a little bit back to the body positivity aspect because I feel like you're doing a subtle thing in the book, which is you are describing your journey of trying to lose weight, but you're also saying, I know you're out there saying, uh, just exercise more and eat less. Like I know, I know what you're saying, and right. it sounds great. But like, here's the reality of what that means and what that takes for me. And there are moments where you describe sort of like, here's what my morning's like, or like, here's what it's like to walk into a restaurant, or here's what it's like to walk into a new room. And when you were writing those, by the time you sat down to write the book, did that level of sort of openness. I mean, it's very raw and very open. A lot of it. Did that come naturally or did you find yourself having to revise and say, no, I'm going to go deeper? I set out saying, I'm going to make it as honest as possible. 
because I've read other books and, and magazine stories and things like that where I thought people were being, I'm not sure phony's the right word, but certainly they were putting the absolute positive spin on everything. And I felt like those books were not helpful. You know, they weren't honest enough in really telling people what it was like so that one, if you are dealing with the same sort of thing, you saw yourself in that place mm-hmm. and that if you were somebody from the outside who didn't understand it, that maybe that would give you a new insight into what it's like. And so I set out from the beginning to make it as raw as possible. I wrote a full draft of the book. This is kind of interesting for inside baseball stuff. Jovi, my editor, did it differently than I've ever heard anybody else do it. He had me do a whole first draft and then he said, I don't want to see it. He said, I want you to send it to five or six people who you think will be really good readers. I want you to get their feedback and then do a rewrite and then send that to me. Mm. He wanted to see basically the second draft. And so that's what I did. I, I wrote it. I sent it to some people who I thought would be fans of mine, but also people who would tell me where it fell short. And they did. Was your and, wife one of them? Uh, she was. Yeah, absolutely. She's read everything from, from the beginning and several other friends of mine. And then I did basically a write-through of that. And then I sent that to Jovi. And I think his main feedback was there were just a couple of places where he felt like I needed to go even deeper. Like, give me one more. You know, these, what I think about in these stories and in a book is like a series of these why questions, right? So I did this. Well, why'd you do that? Well, because I felt this way. So why'd you feel that way? Because this experience happened in my childhood, I guess. So why does that affect you? So there were a couple of places where I think he felt like I was one why short, Mm. you know? And so those are the the little places that I sort of honed in on, and that's where we ended up. And, I mean, you even write about struggling to have kids. Sure. Which is a very, I mean, that's a thing that's so personal to people. Yeah. And I feel like even that, independent of the other issues in the book, is something that uh, a lot of people don't talk about necessarily in that way. Yeah, and that's one, you know, uh, my wife and I, Alex, who's was incredible, has been incredible through all of this, she's a much more private person than me. You know, my my life has sort of been out there for a while in some ways because I was a columnist for so long. And those were difficult sections for both of us to talk about because that's stuff that we had not even told the vast majority of our friends and family. Wow. So, But in the end, we both thought they were important things to talk about because they're things that people who are overweight and the people who love those people um, have to deal with and the, the pain they have to share. And so the, in some ways... I feel like this book is about her as much as me because she's had to deal with me for 20 years now and had to navigate her life and limit her life in many ways because of the limitations on mine. And so I wanted people to understand that as well because the it becomes eventually when you have this sort of addiction or whatever it is, and no matter what it is, if you're on drugs or alcohol or whatever, it's no longer just about you. It's about all the people who have to deal with you in your everyday life and have to work around you even though they love you. And so I wanted people to see that part of it too. The other, um, there's a kind of paradox in the book, which is the book is about losing weight, but it's also like one of the best love letters to Southern food that I've read <laughs> in a really long time. Yeah. I was actually, I was home in Georgia. I was reading it over Christmas and my mom made carrot cake pecan pie, apple, like every holiday. It's like all these Southern yams with marshmallows. And and I was reading these accounts of your growing up and eating those foods. Yeah, my apologies. (laughs) But it's interesting that it's not, 
I feel like you put blame on yourself in a way like you you it's very self-effacing but if you read the book I feel like as a reader I didn't feel that I felt like ah you've given me you've shown me how this happened sure. in a way that I would want to say it's not your fault well I think it's both I mean I think the the certainly the food and the culture I mean one thing I, I try to talk about a little bit and it's not just southern culture it's a lot of sort of blue collar culture is that food is like an expression of love and it's wealth. My family was not uh, wealthy growing up, but we had the best food of anybody. We ate like kings, right? But when you move from the blue collar life into the white collar life, which in my family was my generation, you know, my mom and dad worked in the fields and they worked factory jobs and my mom was a waitress later on. So I moved into a desk job. And so we're eating that same great stuff, but I'm not like burning it off every day. Right. And that's how people of my generation got to be fat. So part of it is the culture I grew up in and the uh, sort of lifestyle I had and the Southern traditions and all those sort of things. So part of that is to blame at some point. But you know, at, at some level, when you grow up and you get older, you have to own your own choices. You know, at eight years old, I couldn't, I guess, be responsible for loving the food that was put in front of me. By the time I'm 28 years old, you know, if I don't start owning up to those choices, then I'm eternally a child, you know, and I have to, this book is a lot about growing up in some ways, and maturing and becoming an adult, even if it takes me into my 50s to be that. And so it's some of both. I mean, it is those things that are implanted into you are very hard for many of us to get past. I like to think that I'm not going to let them define me. Though. Mm -hmm. And so that's that paradox and that struggle that you're talking about. And that's certainly one of the things that I have to, a hump I've had to get over and getting healthier and, and figuring this out. Well, I noticed that, I mean, that theme comes up in the Lorenzen story, the story about the quarterback. Sure. And it's looking at him, but I wondered, did that, and actually it even comes up, I noticed it in the, um, you wrote a long story about a football player from Alabama who then goes to the University of Alabama. Yeah. There's a little section in there about him trying to become a leader on his team, and it says sort of like, there are lessons in here for anyone who's looking to to grow up no matter what age you are. And that yeah. kind of struck me because I'd already read the book and I, I wondered how long that idea was percolating with you. Oh yeah, that's, you know, I'm sure no matter what story I write about, eventually something that's been percolating in my head is in there. You know, all these stories have some little piece of me in there, right? The last story I wrote for ESPN was about Dale Earnhardt Jr. Mm -hmm. and him trying to overcome the concussions that he had and, and sort of find a good ending for himself as a race car driver. Well, that story is about him trying to grow up and mature and own up to the lifestyle that he led and how it affected the people around him and trying to be a better person. Well, that's exactly what I was thinking about. You know, I was in the middle of the book when I did that story on him. And so all these things, yeah, are coming back around and Jared, especially, I felt like hit home with me because he had a similar upbringing to me. You know, there's a lot of fast food and junk food in his life. I mean, I remember his dad would come home with like, two boxes of Little Debbie's and two two-liter bottles of Mountain Dew and they would sit there and watch TV and they would split them, you know? Yeah, and, and that, that was, was their time together. And that's how Jared got to be 400 pounds, right? And so anytime I'm looking for a story or the stories that I guess appeal to me are probably stories of that are stuff that I've been thinking about consciously or subconsciously. That's the kind of stuff I write about. 
And and the book in another way is sort of like it is this accounting of where the media industry has gone because oh, there yeah. you are at the pinnacle of sort of newspapers and then but you you've proved to be a I want to say chameleon but that's not quite the word I'm looking for like more like something that evolves quickly like you you have adapted and tried been willing to try new things including blogging when blogging started and then you went and worked for an online publication and now you're doing a podcast in addition to freelancing. And I'm wondering where that impulse comes from for you. Part of it is just pure survival. You know, I think about the metaphor I've been using lately uh, in the media world is, you know, it's like we're all kind of wandering around in the desert. And somebody comes over the sand dune and says, hey, there's water over here. (laughs) And everybody runs over and they like stick their face under the faucet. They drink as much water as they can. Then it runs dry. And then you wander around for a while and somebody says, hey, there's water over here. And so you run around and get that water for a while. And so that's what I feel like being a journalist is now. It's like, where's the damn water? Mm -hmm. And so that I think is part of it. Also, I, I have always just love telling stories in whatever form it is. You know, I do a podcast now. And so podcasting in some ways takes me back to what I think of as my roots as a journalist, which is listening to my family sit around and tell stories after dinner, after one of those big Southern meals, right? So that sort of conversation and back and forth and that sort of thing like we're doing now, that really feels like home to me. And so... I don't know if I'm a natural fit for it. I'm still learning how to do it, but it feels great to be doing it. You know, I guess one thing that I, I, in my career, in my work life, as opposed to my actual life, I've been fairly unafraid to try stuff. You know, when I was a columnist, I wanted to write bigger pieces too, and I wanted to do stuff that sort of stretched those boundaries and what we now think of as long-form stuff for the newspaper. And so I've, and then I want to do this online stuff, and I want to do magazines and now podcasts. So I have felt like that, I want to, you know, while I'm here, I want to try all the stuff that's out there and see which ones work for me. Yeah. You, I've been listening to the podcast and, uh, you had a great interview with Chuck Lavelle. Who's, yeah. He's great. Like is, Chuck's a great dude. Yeah. If you're uh, like, you know, anybody who can be a keyboard player for the Rolling Stones for 35 years and, and still live to tell about it as a, uh, he's had a good life. A very nice, humble man. Super nice guy. Yeah. Tree <laughs> farmer. And a tree. Yeah. Also working as a tree farmer. But is that, um, what kind of level of gig is that? The podcast is that it's affiliated with the station in yeah, it's a, it's North Carolina. A, right? So I have a full time job there now. That's oh, my, okay. that's my day job. Uh, it's WFAE. It's the NPR station in Charlotte, and I do this podcast called Southbound for them, and I also do a weekly commentary, sort of a version of my old uh, column. They've been super nice to me about trying to figure out how I can work my weird voice and uh, they're you know very npr you know <laughs> everybody else there has these beautiful mellifluous voices and i'm like the outlier but that's perfect because then someone turns on the radio or like downloads the podcast and they like they know it's you they well, always know it's you it's weird I, you know at the station they always have the radio feed going kind of low volume at all times in the background and everybody at NPR has such great voices that it all sounds like one thing for a while until I come on. <laughs> and then you're like, <laughs> you know, it's like static in the radio or whatever. And, uh, and so it is it is distinctive and you can interpret that however you like. <laughs> so are you are you like a known figure in Charlotte? If I were to walk into a restaurant with you, would people be like, hey, Tom Tomlinson? I, sometimes, yeah. It didn't happen as much as it used to because I'm not, I haven't been in the newspaper for six years now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, some. One of my old college roommates, David, and his wife, Kathy, came to visit me 
years ago, and we're in a restaurant, we're having dinner, and we notice this woman like looking at us from across the room, and she gets up and she's sort of wobbly, and she comes over to our table, and she said, you know, I had to have a couple of drinks before I could come over here and say hi, but I love your column. And she was a teacher, and she wanted me to come speak to her class. I said, sure. And I think I, like, autographed her napkin or something. And she walked off, and my roommate, my old roommate, who's known me since I was 18 and just a goofball, he's like, what the hell was that? You know, it's like, you? They're, they're talking to you? And, and so in Charlotte, yeah, some. I get some of that. And I think that's part of my probably part of my value to the radio station is that people in Charlotte know me and they connect with me over the years because I've been, you know, in my face and name have been out there for almost 20 years now. Is there any, is there any, I asked you the flip side of this before, but is there any of the, all these pieces you wrote about Charlotte that you look back and, and wince at that you, that sticks with you? Oh, hundreds. I mean, I, I, you know, one of the, part of the thing of columnists is that you're wrong at least twice a week. Yeah. I'm trying to think of, uh, there was, you know, there was uh, like a sheriff's election that I wrote about. There was a guy who was doing some chicanery to get elected, and he was not a good guy. But I felt like he was doing what he was doing for good reasons, and I sort of backed him a couple of times in the column. And looking back, that was not a smart play on my part. <laughs> did he get taken down? Uh, he did get taken down. I think I don't. Even, I don't even remember if he. Like, it's like he got elected and then was out of office almost immediately. I'm. People in Charlotte are going to kill me for not remembering this story well enough. But, yeah, all the time in that job, you, know, you have to make judgments. And you have to say, here's what I think about something. And many, many times I've I've been wrong. And then, and, and, you know, and part of what is fun about that job or interesting about that job is that sometimes you have time to go back and say, I was wrong about this, sorry. And uh, you hope that people take what you say as, here's somebody who's reasonably informed making a judgment on it instead of this is gospel, you know, and I don't want people to like make actions in their lives based on what I'm saying at a given moment. I want, I want them to take what I say in consideration and maybe think about it as part of all the other stuff they're thinking about. But it's, you know, if I thought my word was gospel on these things, it would be really hard to write, you know, in the same way the book, you know, I, here's my story. It's not your story. There are parts of it that you're probably going to disagree with. Parts of it you may challenge of my story. That's fine. I may look at pieces of this book five years from now and think, ah, I didn't do that right. But it's kind of me in the moment, and I had to make those calls, and that's sort of what journalism is. You know, you make that call in the moment, and then you you let history look back and see if you're right or not. And so this whole time, I can imagine that, even from my own experience, that you have this sort of can't wait for this to come out. You've been working on it for a long time. You put your heart and your life into this book, but also uh, it's frightening that it comes out because it contains so much about you that especially people you know on a day-to-day basis or that live around you are yeah. going to go pick up this book and read it. Sure. People are going to know me in a way that they didn't before. Like there's stuff in this book that I never talked about with friends or family or, or anybody. You know, and and so people are going to learn some things. And one of the things, you know, I talk about in the book a little bit is this idea, which I know sounds silly, but I, I do think it as I get healthier and my body gets in better shape, is it going to change my personality in some way, in a negative way? Because people kind of like me, you know, in general. I mean, I, I guess that sounds weird saying that, but I, I, I feel like I'm sort of a likable person. 
to get to where I need to go health wise, am I going to have to like take something out of my personality or is something going to get washed away and with the pounds I lose? That's like a, what I feel like is a really good part of me. So to kind of go back around to your question, I do worry a little bit that people I care about may not like me quite as much when they read about the things I've struggled with or the things that some of the things I think about when I'm out in the world and that sort of thing. I think I come across in some places as not very likable or not very happy or, or whatever it is. And so I think the people that are really like or that really like me and really care about me, the people who love me, I don't think it's going to change that a whole lot. But a lot of it's sort of new information, I think, too. Mm-hmm. And I'll, we'll see how that, that works. I, I am a little anxious about that. And the other side of that would be with people who don't know you. Mm-hmm. I would think in a good way, it could make people comfortable either talking to you or just talking about their own issues, whether they're exactly your issues or whatever issues I have or anyone else does. But it could also, I feel like in particular, the sort of quest to lose pounds part of it could open up the possibility that people feel comfortable literally asking you your weight. You know what I mean? Like, oh, well, like, I mean, oh, where are you at right now? Well, that that's going to be the case. If the book does well, that'll be the case for the rest of my life. Yeah. I mean, every time I go out to eat now, if the book does well and it's people know who I am or whatever, I'll always be watched, you know, as I like, Oh, I'm not sure I'll be getting that cheeseburger. Now, the fact is that that happened before, you know, when you see a fat guy walk into the room and you see him order like a, plate of fried chicken or whatever, it, you can't help but think, are you sure you should be doing that? But if there's the layer over that where I wrote a whole book about this stuff, it's like the guy wrote the book about it and now he's still doing this? What's what's wrong with him? So I, I really have to pay attention to that in a way that I probably haven't before. And I think I'll have to be prepared for people to talk to me about this stuff in a way that I haven't been prepared for before. So there, you know, there are Consequences is not the right word, but it, but there are things that are repercussions. Things are going to happen. And in your writing, you've written about yourself in your columns at different times. You're, as you said, you're, you've been open about your life in different ways. But has this made you feel like now I, I want to not write about myself for the yeah, next pers- well, for, for, I, foreseeable I, future? I, you know, I, I don't have, I mean, <clears throat> this is most of what I got right here. You know, <laughs> I threw my fastball on this one. And so, um, I don't know that there is any other great book about me to be written. Um, not that this one's great, but that's, this is out there. Uh, and so I have a lot of things in mind. And right now, all of them are about other subjects. They're like, you know, not about me. And so I, we'll just see what happens with that. That kind of depends on what the demand is and what might light somebody else's fire. But I don't, you know, I would, I would hope that this does not lead to the next 20 years of me writing about me. Um, I thought this is the big issue in my life. You know, this is the one hurdle that I have never been able to get over. And it's the one story that I thought I could tell about myself that would be useful and helpful to the most people. And so now that I've told it, I think anything else I would say would probably be fairly minor in comparison. Well, I love the book and it's, it's just incredibly honest and it's a, I, as I told you before, I read it and I made my family all go away so I could read it all in one <laughs> sitting. So I hope you've repaired those relationships. <laughs> so thank you for coming on the show. Uh, my pleasure. Evan. Really thank appreciate you, it. Thank you so much, man. That is it for this week's long form podcast. I'm your co-host Evan Ratliff. 
thank you so much to Tommy Tomlinson for coming into the studio. His book is titled The Elephant in the Room. I highly, highly recommend you pick it up. He also has a podcast called Southbound. Thank you to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern, Tyler McCloskey. As always, thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. And remember, we have an event coming up. It's a live, long-form podcast show in Brooklyn at the Bell House, February 13th. It's free, but you do have to RSVP. Check the show notes for a link, and it's filling up, so there's a few spots left. So jump in if you're around and want to come. Our special guest will be Taffy Brodesser-Ackner, who's been on the show and will be amazingly fun to hang out with. And then we'll drink and celebrate the launch of my book, which is called The Mastermind. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.